Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Jasper Mutsaerts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With Soul Kitchen, I interview people that inspire me. From TED speakers to social entrepreneurs, from activists to artists, from dreamers to seekers, from business people to spiritual teachers. With Soul Kitchen, I empower people to live their quest. And each episode contains a recipe for life. What is your quest? Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Welcome to a new episode. I am currently in Ecuador in the Amazon. I think four months ago, I did a dream visualization session with someone. And then I found out that I wanted to go to Ecuador. And um, on Google, I found Dr. Scott Irwin, who is a transpersonal and integration psychologist who currently runs a retreat center in Ecuador in collaboration with the Sachawasi community. And in the past, he has been a senior minister of the SoulQuest Ayahuasca Church in Orlando. When I read about his profile, I was very curious because I actually didn't know that Ayahuasca churches existed. And um, I was very curious to, to work with him. And we've been working together for the past two weeks, or I can better say I've been learning with him and with the medicine. So I'm so happy to be able to interview you about your life and your wisdom. Thanks, Jasper. So can you share how did you end up where you are right now in Ecuador? Yeah, that's a long story. <laughs> the, um, so the, the path to Ecuador started uh, one day in my office at the uh, School of Medicine at the University of Miami. So I had um, a patient that came to me who asked me um, a, a couple of questions. Uh, actually, he was kind of bragging about his, uh, his upcoming 50th ayahuasca ceremony in Costa Rica. And we had been working on some other physical things. And I'm like, what's this? What are you talking about ayahuasca? And I'd never heard about it. And he was telling me about this medicine that comes from the, the vine of this uh, plant in the Amazon. And, and it's mixed with a leaf of another plant from the Amazon. And you drink it and you vomit and you have visions and you hallucinate and you, you might, uh, you know, mess your pants. And it sounded horrible. And I just kind of wrote this guy off as one of these, um, one of these guys that go to those music festivals mm -hmm. and wears a skirt and um, <laughs> does too many tabs of acid. And so, and this was an MD, this is a physician. And I thought, wow, you know, you're just way off the chart. And um, a couple of weeks later, I had another patient come to me and she was a mother that had um, a newborn child that was born with a significant birth defect in his leg. And, um, and she had said, do I know about this uh, Amazonian tea called ayahuasca that's, um, that's available at this church up in Orlando, Florida called uh, SoulQuest, Ayahuasca Church of Mother Earth? And uh, what did I think about it and for something that could help her? And I'm like, ayahuasca, that's twice. That's twice that I'm hearing about it in the same month, and I've never heard about it before. And my area of specialty is in natural medicine alternative medicines. And um, so I was particularly curious about it. So I did what most people do when they first find out about ayahuasca. And that's, you know, go to the internet, go to Google and try to figure out how do you spell ayahuasca? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the weirdest word to spell. It's weird, right? It is, yeah. 
And so I started looking at the documentaries and the videos and all those things. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, if this medicine is half as good as what everybody says it is, then I know that my patients could benefit from this. And so I went to SoulQuest uh, for my very first time about seven years ago now. And what I experienced in that first weekend changed my trajectory of my career uh, forever. I saw what was like um, maybe 5, 10, 15 years of psychotherapy in one weekend. And I've never seen anything like that in my life. And so I was, um, I was uh, convinced right from the beginning that this is a very special medicine. So people that were coming to the medicine that had uh, severe treatment-resistant depression, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, um, a lot of problems in lives like divorce and death of children and, you know, addictions and suicidal ideation. I saw these problems being resolved in a weekend and people were coming out with, you know, with great profound um, transformations and then going home and then over periods of time, um, being involved in integration and seeing that these changes for most people were long-term and were uh, highly productive. And so I just got more and more into the medicine. And so uh, I was um, asked to be on the board of directors of that, uh, of that church eventually, because I was volunteering and mm-hmm. I was holding integration uh, because the other people there weren't psychologists. They really didn't know what they were doing. And I was like, I can help. And so I just kind of fell into it. And then I had uh, been a president of a board of trustees for a church, uh, Unity Church in Fort Lauderdale. So I had a lot of experience in church. And I'm an ordained minister, went through a, a seminary program. And so I'm familiar with the church structure. And so I was asked to help this organization for their legalization process. In the United States, there is religious freedom. And if you're going to dispense of this uh, medicine called ayahuasca, it's considered illegal unless you're in a church. And so they needed a church. Mm. And so the church was at that point was about six months old. And so that was my job was helping to, to uh, build the, the infra- infrastructure of this church. This church became the, one of the world's largest ayahuasca churches where we served over 20,000 uh drinkers, uh, people, uh, ayahuasca drinkers for the first time, and uh, quite uh, quite an amazing evolution. Um, the process of a ceremony is very difficult. It takes a lot of care and a lot of concern, and so there was the building of the medical team, establishing um, really solid protocols. Uh, integration is essential. That's where you spend time after a ceremony, trying to make sense of what happened in the journey. And um, so I was also the staff psychologist, the senior minister and board of directors there. So really heavily involved. Um, I've never seen um, such healing in my life. And what would you say um, is the role of the ayahuasca ceremony itself? And what is the role of the integration in kind of the healing process for a drinker or a patient? Well, I always say that um, that there's no medicine, there's no doctor, there's no guru, there's no shaman that is, uh, that's going to heal you. And so the ultimate solution is that you are going to heal you. So the integration um, part is where uh, 
you take the insights that you've gained under the medicine and bring it into uh, some real life changes. So it's it's kind of like this. Um, there was a, a guru that came from India named Swami Satchidananda, and uh, he was the Woodstock guru in the, back in the 60s mm-hmm. before you were born. <laughs> it was the Woodstock era where you know psychedelics were were just you know being introduced as part of the the the, rena- the, the, the psychedelic uh, renaissance that was happening. And um, Swami Satchidananda said that um, that the mind is the mirror of the soul and the body is a mirror of the mind and if your mind is not reflecting immeasurable love immeasurable wisdom immeasurable harmony then you have a dirty mind Mm -hmm. and then ayahuasca really is like this window cleaner that clears the mirror of the mind for the ceremony for just a moment a brief moment and where in these ceremonies you get a glimpse of who you truly are, who that potential self is, or who that spirit is, or the soul, or the being that uh, that we call the true self, the higher self. Um, you know, it's you know, ayahuasca is not uh, bound by any religion. Uh, it's a shamanic tradition that comes out of the Amazon. It's really a container that that supports all religious and, and non-religious beliefs. So it doesn't offend. It offends everybody or offends no one. Mm-hmm. It's all the same. You know, it really does give you a glimpse into your into your inner world. So for a lot of people, they've experienced trauma, and trauma, and everyone with addiction has had trauma, and so there are a lot of of symptoms of of what we call a separation. And, you know, like as a holistic, you know, practitioner myself, I believe that, you know, all illness, mental illness and physical illness is a result of a separation. Trauma is a separation. It's separation from your true self, separation from your love, separation from your heart, separation from your soul, separation from spirit or God. And so the ayahuasca in that glimpse in your of your being of your inner of your inner soul uh begins to create a new connection and for some it may be a connection to love that they haven't experienced before in their lives so it's reconnecting or connecting again to your light your light force your your i call your cream filling (laughs) so it's kind of decreasing the separation uh, that is created by your mind from like everything that is from the trauma yeah. So we come into this world, I believe, whole and perfect and complete. The way the infinite creator, whatever you call that God, created us. Mm-hmm. You're whole, perfect and complete. And you're this innocent, pure little child. Hearts wide open. You're just created for who you are. And you get life. You get life the way it comes with your family, with whatever the, the circumstances, the traumas that you go through. And this is the overwhelming experience that causes a person to split or to disassociate or to fragment um, away from their heart, their soul, their heart, that center. And so you learn to adapt and become this other aspect of yourself, which is really the aspects of the ego. And the ego is all about fear and protection and separation and the soul or the spirit of the true you is about love and connection and union and so that's the nature of the medicine work is to 
to reconnect where the where the separations have occurred. And I've never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. It's very efficient. I do agree. And for me, it's hard uh, to put onto words, uh, but it's more a certain experience that connects me with the pure version of me or, or, or other people. Or the unafraid version, the unintimidated, yeah. the, in, uh, the un, what is it? The, when you're intimidated. So the, the unbashful self, the raw, the true. Yeah, no, I agree. Because sometimes I have doubts. We also discussed that I worry about things. But sometimes through ayahuasca, I see this, I don't know, the lightness of life or the, the, the freedom, the pureness. So part one is, let's say, the, the ceremony itself. And then part two is the integration, which I like about you. And let's say this place where there's emphasis on integration, because I've also done a ceremony in the Netherlands where there was little integration or maybe the, the, the people had less experience. So what do you see the role of integration, both with someone like yourself, but also being part of, let's say, a group? So integration is essential. If you're going to do any kind of an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, there needs to be integration. And so the facility, the retreat center may not offer it. If you're in remote centers, they may not have, have experienced integration coaches, but there are places like on the plantmedicinepath.com. We have a number of integration coaches that are available. Many of the groups are free online. Um, and there's also another organization called beingtruetoyou.com. They have integration coaches that are available. So integration is where you take these moments of insight where you have come to this medicine. Typically, people are coming to the medicine to help them heal. So you get some great insight. You go to the mountain, you get your insight, you get your treatment, and then you got to go home. And going home is where the where the trouble is you know you, they call this this pink cloud when you're in this little ayahuasca uh retreat and you're having other like-minded people with you and you're starting to you know fall in love with yourself again or feel the forgiveness of of the past or you're letting go of the sadness and the grief and then when you return back home it's the same as the way it was when you came and so it's often easy for people to go back into old patterns so when you take these nuggets, these insights, that these, these transformational moments from the ceremony and then bring them into, uh, into daily practical practice. Um, so, for example, uh, many people that come to the medicine, they go in their journey, the mother ayahuasca, we call them the madre, uh, she could be anything, uh, gives a message of you need to start loving yourself. Mm-hmm. And that means for you, stop drinking or stop, you know, start exercising and, and stop eating so many, you know, <laughs> bags of potato chips or whatever. And so you get these marching orders and you go home and it lasts for a week. And then you're back to old patterns again. So integration is really taking that insight and, um, and bring it into a, a, a new habit. So you don't change your life. Your habits change your life. And the medicine gives us all these kinds of, of insights and directions. But then if you don't do something with it, then it's just a, 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 a psychedelic um, journey, a, a moment uh, of entertainment or um, a, just an experience. It's just another experience. It didn't produce a life-changing transformation. And so that's where... 
the integration, like what we do here at Sachoasi, we have free integration every Tuesdays at 2 p.m. online. So when someone comes to a medicine uh, retreat here, they know that ongoing indefinitely there is integration, a group where you get to sit together and share. Where group is important is that you have others that bear witness with you um, to your experience. Usually when you suffer, you suffer in silence. And when you uncover a nugget of something that's very personal and very deep, and you have the unconditional loving support of a group around you, it begins to normalize the transition. You feel um, that you're not all alone, that there are people that are with you, that you're not a freak. Other people share their stories and they say, yeah, I know what that pain feels like. And then there is a feeling of community, which is as strong as the medicine itself. And that's one of our goals. I, I do. I do feel that as well, that when I share my stories with other people and then they have similar challenges or I also notice that they worry, it feels lighter or I kind of feel more human in a way. Because no, and it feels like, oh, maybe I have this little secret, but then I share it and then, oh, other people have the same. And um, so we have the ayahuasca and then we have the integration. And you already mentioned some people have had trauma. Some people have addiction. What are some other types of challenges that people experience that brings them to ayahuasca? And maybe question two, does it always start with a certain challenge or can it also come from a rather positive yeah, beginning? So I've seen, I've seen with 20,000 people plus, I mean, I've seen almost every possible reason to come to the medicine. And I can go off onto the most extremes, which are horrific experiences that people have had in their lives that we can't even fathom. You know, I've worked with probably over 2,000 veterans. And, you know, the veterans really suffer a lot from the atrocities of war that they have to go through. So there's those things. You know, when, when your child commits suicide, um, a parent does not know how to deal with it. They're not equipped to deal with that. When you lose um, a relationship, the love of your life, you know, we're not equipped to deal with that. Um, people come to this medicine often when they're at the end of their rope. And many are at that place of contemplation between suicide or, or you know, or addiction which is another form of suicide in many ways. And then there are those that are looking for inspiration. They've, they've done so much in their lives, and yet there's no feeling of fulfillment and satisfaction. Maybe something is missing. Or they're doing great in their lives, and they're ready for the next level. Maybe it's in that transition, like in the 60s, where people, when they're in their 60s, they're empty nesters. They they're not family member, you know, like mom and dad with a nuclear family anymore. Kids are off in college and, and they're in the next, they're the last third of their lives. And it's like, okay, now what? What do I want to do? And so people come for vision. They come for insight. They come for inspiration. You know, you got people like Will Smith, for example, mm -hmm. coming to Ecuador and, and, and drinking. You work with him? No, no. Oh. I, yeah, I like Will Smith. But he came and worked with the tribe um, in Ecuador. And... There's somebody that has uh, a full life with, you know, great success. And, um, and, you know, it's what I call the Aristotelian principle. The Aristotelian principle states that the brain requires inc increasingly complex activities like chess over checkers, which is the, 
you know, which is what growth is about. We have to grow. And so if you're at that place in the, in your life, you've been successful and you've done so much, what next? And so for many, this is the, um, the opening towards spirituality, the opening towards the cosmic realities or the, the what's behind the veil, the things that are uh, unknown or unseen, the things that are not talked about, mysteries of life, um, the mysteries of God and existence. A lot of those seekers come to this plant medicine and find the answers. So uh, it's the full range. I want to know love, come to the medicine. I want to heal, come to the medicine. I want to, you know, free and liberate myself to, you know, to be my highest version of myself and come to the medicine. So, you know, it's, it's like addiction. It's great for addiction. Not just ayahuasca, but the other um, jungle medicines that they use here, like San Pedro, which is the mescaline that comes from the cactus, and the, um, the, the psilocybin. Um, the, the magic mushrooms, and there's the, uh, the the secretions of the giant green jungle frog called mm-hmm. cambo, which is deep cleansing. There's mapacho, which is a sacred tobacco that's used for cleansing and purging and the elimination of, of negative energies. And then there's rape or hape, hapelita, which is a shamanic snuff that's also made with mapacho. And these are really important medicines that are used in combinations with these ceremonies to bring about even deeper, more profound healing and, and releasing and letting go of the past, letting go of toxins, letting go of toxic emotions, toxic uh, you know, thoughts, you know, psychology. Really amazing. So next to ayahuasca, there's a wide range of other uh, jungle medicines and you mentioned that around seven years ago you came in touch with ayahuasca yes. and now you're also serving other people but how did you learn about these modalities or about these medicines how did you learn working with them originally i worked on timothy leary's autobiography and timothy leary is one of these uh, iconic figures from the the 60s that um was a a, a doctor that was uh, at Harvard University mm-hmm. that was doing psychedelic research with undergraduates. And Dr. Andrew Weil was a, uh, a, I think he was a graduate student. And he he told on Tim DeLeary, he basically busted him and said, he's doing these um, experiments with undergraduates using magic mushrooms. So that created all kinds of hell. And so he was basically fired, kicked out along with uh, the... Uh, uh, his colleagues, and he ended up um, becoming one of the most infamous characters in the psychedelic renaissance movement. When I worked on his autobiography, um, I was introduced to LSD for the first time Mm -hmm. and MDMA, and I found it to be remarkable, profound, wild, and, um, and I was young at that time, opened my mind to spirituality in ways that I'd never conceived. And that was really the beginning. And then uh, it wasn't until I came to, uh, to SoulQuest that I actually started to uh, lean into this idea of, of ayahuasca as a, um, as a therapeutic, mm-hmm. as a medicine. And, of course, you know, working with 
we would have tights that come in and we would learn how to um, serve the medicine, learn how to facilitate ceremonies. And we developed um, quite a remarkable system. You know, SoQuest, I think, went a little um, uh, astray uh, in their model, um, which, you know, I fought for some time. When you have 100 people in a ceremony, um, that to me, I think, is driven by greed. And there is, um, to me, a violation of the sacredness of the medicine when you have that many people and, and motivations from that, that space. That's not the facilitators with that greed. That's the organizers. But the idea is, you know, this, this medicine, um, we're all learning how to work with it continuously. So, well, you, of course, learning from the, the indigenous, from the indigenous. Is, is the source. Yeah. Because you, uh, you touched upon ayahuasca, you touched upon LSD. And um, I think six months or a year ago, I was uh, reading a book, uh, History of LSD, related to social cultural developments. I'm definitely not an expert. What I remember is that initially the CIA was very enthusiastic about LSD and the potential. And they were uh, assessing its, its benefits for also, I don't know, dealing with crime or, or detecting criminals or mind control or, or that. And at some point in the sixties, I think uh, people started using it more recreationally until I think Richard Nixon uh, started the war on drugs and then it got more negative PR. And then more recently it's getting a bit more back into mainstream. And there's a Dutch political party that has now put all these things on the political agenda. So, I mean, you're a bit older than me. Can you give a bit a historical overview of all these phenomenon, maybe your opinion, also your work with Timothy Leary? Like, what can you share about this? Yeah, well, you know, the, I, I think that the, these, you mentioned the CIA. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like there's, there's all these, you know, conspiracy theories out there that usually end up turning out to be true somehow. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, while you're, reporting that they're a theory of this conspiracy theory, then they say you're crazy. And then when it suddenly come true, then it's like, never talk about it again. So I think that the, so Timothy Leary was out there saying, you know, uh, to tune out, tune it, uh, to turn on and tune in. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea was about uh, creating a cultural movement, a renaissance of spirituality that the, all the world needs now is love, sweet love. And so that's what the movement was about, was opening hearts, freeing yourself, um, thinking for yourself, critical reasoning. Think for yourself. Don't let the government tell you what to think. And so that was a part of, you know, the liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart, liberation of the soul. When you have these other forces, Richard Nixon and, you know, later Nancy Reagan and that sort of thing, talking about just saying no, my perspective from the research that I've done was they really, the government was really trying to create a wedge between uh, generations, the family unit, uh, especially, and that having the, uh, the kids in this, the young people in this hippie culture who are love, sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, promoting the music, you know, the way that Paola worked in the music industry back then, um, this was a part of creating a counterculture movement that separated young people from their traditional parents, from the values of the tra traditional parents. And that was the beginning of the liberalization 
of the um, uh, school systems and the the direction that uh, that begins the breakdown of the nuclear family. And so that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but that was how the drug, the war on drugs, I think, really came into be was that it was a part of a, of a larger uh, campaign to um, to break up the family system. Yeah. Because their family system is who decides, you know, governmental thing, who we vote for, where we're going. And you've got kids that are not connected to their mothers and fathers that way, then they're more influenceable. Mm. I see. So it was a attempt to influence the kind of family system behavior, faulty behavior. What role did Timothy Leary play culturally? Because he is, of course, a, uh, a leader, but it means that there are m- many more people were active in that space. But what role did he play historically? Well, he really was the guy that started this you know, this great, um, you know, research into this field. Um, you know, he, they they planted drugs on him. They 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 set him up. They you know they got him out of the way. Um, but he j- he broke out of jail. This guy's a, a, a rebel. I think he was thirty six times in jail. Right? Yeah, this guy's <laughs> a rebel. It's like, and I just I just I love him. I remember last time I saw him um, in Los Angeles. I was at the Beverly Center going to a movie, and I was with a friend. And I get this tap on my shoulder, and it's Tim saying hi. And I'm like, oh, how's it going? And uh, my friend was like, you know Timothy Theory? <laughs> you call him Tim? And it's like it was kind of cool. It was it was cool. But um, how did you end up knowing him? I think about through a job that you had, right, in the past. So yeah, so my um, so I I had uh, received a scholarship to train for the Olympics in track mm-hmm. and the '84 Olympics in Los Angeles, and so I was uh, given a host family, and my host family happened to be the most extraordinary people. Um, it was uh, Jeremy Tarcher and Sherry Lewis, and so mm-hmm. Jeremy Tarcher was this maverick book publisher of J.P. Tarcher. And I, I had been given my, you know, my real first job out of after college uh, with with Jeremy working um, in the publishing house, and it was one of the titles that we worked on. He was a, a, a leading edge publisher. Uh, he was on the board of directors of the Esalen Institute. Mm-hmm. He was around all the movers and shakers in the world, and he was a great influence in my life. Sherry Lewis was this American icon. She had this little puppet named Lamb Chop. And she was the first color television program in television history. And she was a, a legend in many generations. So even uh, even in the, the 90s, she had a, a long-going television series. She was a, ch- a children's entertainer. She had given me a job while I was in college as her road manager and then eventually her lighting director. And she was doing family pops concerts, tours, with um, all the major symphonies in North America. And so, and special venues. And so into 
you know, we into the White House and, you know, met the, you know, the Reagans and the, and the Bush Sr., Bush Jr. And, and the Clintons. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's something to brag about or nice, to, nice. Be, to be ashamed about. <laughs> it's just like, you know, with the corruption of politics the way it is now, it's like these infamous presidents of the United States. But um, it was a really uh, incredible, informative time in my life when uh, I was a, a hick from Nebraska. I was a, a, an athlete. My sister was a world champion weightlifter, powerlifter. Oh, wow. With 10 world records, 38 national records. So you come father, from an athlete family. Absolutely. You know, my father started us training. We had great coaches, plenty of vitamins, great, you know, you know, food. And you were also involved in some sort of youth Olympic team, right? Or some? The United States Olympics. So I would go to the, uh, the uh, U.S. Olympic training centers. So originally there was the... The one in Colorado Springs is mm -hmm. the main, that's like the, the, the main one, um, the flagship. But before that, there was, uh, or in addition to that, there was one in Squaw Valley, California. That was the very first one I went to. And, um, and I was very fortunate to get a scholarship and very fortunate to have uh, been well-funded so I could train anywhere. I could go to any races I want. I had uh, a, lot of, a lot of opportunities. And so, you know, I really didn't have this great love for sports it was something that i just did it was a part of my you know my path i was very disciplined i did well but it wasn't really in my soul um it's just all i knew and uh so it was that time in my life it was sherry and jeremy who just opened my world you know these are people that lived in beverly hills with you know ming dynasty bases and celebrities and all that kind of stuff and and i've never seen anything like that and i was kind of really captivated and then after being in, in los angeles for probably about 13 years i would say it took me 13 years to escape from la mm. but um you know while i was there you know i had grown and went from from there into uh working uh with one of the most uh one of the most world's famous doctors dr patrick sunshung who uh billionaire billionaire mm -hmm. doctor He's actually known as the richest doctor in the world. Oh, wow. And owns the LA Times and, you know, had uh, patented two um, cancer treatments that, you know, for breast cancer. And, but what, what um, I had done working with, with Patrick was help him um, build um, a, um, a medical research laboratory um, at the VA Wadsworth Medical Center in West Los Angeles, which was sponsored by Lee Iacocca, who was the, uh, at that time, he was the, um, the CEO or C CEO of, um, of Chrysler, hmm. a very famous guy. And his wife, Mary, had died of diabetes. And so um, was very interested in this particular area of research that, that this laboratory was all about. So we created this um, uh, insulin the islet producing um, technology in this laboratory and then opened up a diabetes management and research center at Century City Hospital. And quite fascinating, um, you know, the idea that they could take, um, originally they were taking cadaver donors, uh, pancreases and or pancreae <laughs> and, and digesting the, 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 the tissue away and just taking the insulin producing islets and then encapsulating them and then um, 
injecting them into the peritoneal cavity where they could, under immunosuppression, produce insulin for diabetics. And so it was quite, quite a, a promising technology that was then converted into using porcine um, uh, islets pig, uh, from pigs and um, not kosher. Mm -hmm. So doing that. And so that was quite a fascinating ordeal. And while I was there, I met my um, my great mentor and mm -hmm. dear friend, which is Dr. Robert Lanza. And Dr. Robert Lanza is one of the people that uh, cloned the first endangered species, uh, co-wrote the first uh, book on heart transplantation, um, published and did great research with B.F. Skinner, uh, Linus Pauling, Jonas Salk. Time Magazine said he's one of the... Uh, uh, 100 or 10 or something like that, most important scientists mm. alive today. I don't know. I just knew him as Robbie. And we were great friends. And over the course of 30 years, this man really influenced uh, the direction of my life and my desire to go to school and become a, a, a doctor with two different doctorates. So, Because you seem to be someone that uh, is inspired to to be one of the best in your field. Uh, I can see your drive uh, conversation, each conversation that you have. So is it something that you got from your childhood, like the athlete mindset, or is it, that, where does it come from? I would say it came from my childhood, but probably not anything positive like what you just described. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe it was the wrong assumption. Just the, just the opposite. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It all started way back. <laughs> no, actually, it started in the basement um, when I was 11 years old. Hmm. I had um, I'd gotten in trouble, and I had a, uh, lied about um, ripping my coat. I had a brand new winter coat, mm -hmm. one of these bomber jackets, you know, with this like the Air Force they mm -hmm. wear with the sheepskin collars and. I was on my way home from school one day and there was a swing over a creek and, you know, a rope swing and playing with it with my brother and my friends and all that. And I was on the swing too long and somebody tried to grab me and they ripped my collar off my brand new coat. And I was so afraid. I knew I was going to be in trouble because my father was very severe, very, very severe. And um, I ended up uh, getting grounded. Uh, in the basement for about six months. Oh, wow. And it was in that period of time that um, I had my my reset, my spiritual awakening, my desire to, um, to heal. Mm. Um, and it was a pretty rough time. And I remember um, coming out of that um, in, a, uh, in a place of wanting to heal um, at that time in my life, I really wanted to die. I it felt that the life was really hard. It was really, really too hard for me at that stage in my life. And um, had I not had that kind of difficulty and then found that relationship, actually, um, at that point, I became a secret mm. Christian. Mm. My father was a minister that was an atheist and forbade religion in our home. And so I had uh, discovered relief of my depression and suffering as an 11-year-old through a radio talk show I listened to, and it just inspired me. That was my model. Mm. This guy would receive 
calls from all kinds of people in the world or in the wherever it was, it was in Wheaton, Illinois. And the show was called Night Sounds with Bill Pierce. And he get calls from people saying, my husband just left me and I want to die and all that kind of stuff. And he had a spiritual solution for every person that was calling. And that sparked me. That gave me my, my ultimately my, the seed that became my desire to, uh, to want to help um, people find their pathways back to their true self or their, their heart, their soul. I think it's always, you know, uh, the aim of every of every therapist really is to help people to reconnect so it was a childhood experience when you were 11 you were six months in the basement that kind of led to your spiritual awakening and realization that you wanted to to heal people and as part of your toolbox you already discussed different things but breath work we haven't discussed yet and uh, we did a breath work session in Sachawasi, and i think you also work with stanislav Grof. can you share a bit more about his influence on you and why you use breathwork. Well, Stan Groff is the um, is the found one of the co-founders of transpersonal psychology, which is the um, a school of psychology that really builds on the traditional model of psychology, but uh, it, it, it includes the transpersonal realms, which are transcendental realms, like anything that includes spirituality. And so that kind of fit me perfectly. Um, I wanted to, to be uh, uh, a, a, a therapist that included, uh, I don't say religion, but the conversation of God. I can't believe you can heal without God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not just this source of healing, whatever God thing is you call it. But the Stan Groff um, had this... Um, uh, great impact on my life because of the type of psychology and the modalities. The, the breathwork is one of the modalities, but this is the man who really created the first cartography of the psyche. What is it that goes on inside? You know, Freud did his job, but what uh, Groff did was he helped us understand these states of being um, that life began uh, at conception. Life began in the womb that we have access to these memories. And in fact, these experiences in the womb impact our psychology and our personalities now today. Um, so he was one of these guys that was a contemporary of, of Timothy Leary and um, my, I call my Sarah, yeah, Jeremy Tarcher. They were very close together. And um, these were, Sam Groff was a prolific researcher in Prague uh, in psychedelics. And so after Timothy Leary put the kibosh on those psychedelic uh, research, um, that meant that Stan Groff couldn't do it either. Nowhere in the world were they allowed to do it. And he was doing great research um, in, uh, in Prague. And so what, he, what Groff ended up doing was transitioning from the traditional studying of psychedelic uh, research to breathwork. He found that you could reach non-ordinary states of consciousness like you do with with entheogens like 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 LSD or or, or ayahuasca or these things, um, with the breath, and so he was really the founder of holotropic breathwork, which is a three hour plus three to five hour breathing session, continuous breathing where there is no pause between the breaths, and it changes your blood urine pH level. You don't um, hyperventilate. You super oxygenate, and it ends up taking you into uh, transcendental states. 
So he then shifted from psychedelic uh, research to breathwork research. And it's one of the most researched uh, breathworks. And he really created transpersonal psychology. This whole notion of spiritual emergence and this whole idea that, um, you know, that uh, um, was not understand, understood at all before, before that, before if you went to a therapist and you started talking about your belief in God, it's like, that's for you and your minister, mm. you and your pastor, your priest. It's not included in your therapy. And yet most people have a, a, a spiritual container of some kind, a spiritual reference that they rely on, especially in really difficult times. And for that to be off the table in therapy just seemed like you're missing so much of valuable modeling who's what's going on in the model of the world of the patient this is their this is their world you can't not talk about what's going on in the world so Groff really brought that out brought that forward and really brought spirituality into psychotherapy and so you know a huge huge impact on my life so I had gone to Prague and um, really fascinated by this this man and his life's work and, um, and learned breath work directly from him. And I've been doing breath work for 15 years before as well, but I think breath work is one of the best modalities that is out there. It's not illegal. You can breathe, it's free. It's accessible, right? It's accessible. It's not, you don't do that when you're driving and you don't huh. do it without a sitter. It's really best to have understanding of what you're doing. I, I do it more than meditation because I, have more immediate benefits or at least that's my that's right. perception and um so you mentioned that Groff's war kind of connects religion uh not in religion. a way oh not religion spirituality oh, spirituality and psychology yeah and um in the ayahuasca church and, and, um, and other kooky stuff like the astral plane and you know aliens and all the kind of stuff that the the phenomena yeah just phenomena. So phenomena, spirituality, and psychology. Yeah. So I said religion. That was that was not the right word to use, but I kind of my brain made a connection to the ayahuasca church, where there's ayahuasca, and then there's a church because it's needed to legalize uh, it's your activities. Yeah, in, in the United States. But does the ayahuasca church have some sort of belief, or is the church more a term to make the ayahuasca possible? Well, probably both. So, like my job at SoulQuest was to create a um, a doctrine for the church, and so in the United States you have to be a church. So it's not, there's it's not natural, it's not natural. It is required by the by the government. So to be qualified by the government, you have to as a church you gotta technically you have to have you know a, a spiritual beliefs. So. There are a lot of ayahuasca churches in the United States, and most of them create their own doctrines, their own ideas of spirituality. So in my church, what the main emphasis was predicated on the work um, that came out of the ayahuasca manifesto. The ayahuasca manifesto you can find online. It's a absolutely brilliant document that's really the in the voice of the mother, Ayahuasca, talking about taking this medicine um, seriously and bringing it out of the Amazon basin where we are right now and into the world. And these are the ways to do it. 
responsibly, ethically, morally, and what's a belief spiritually. So it really gave us um, a foundation for building our um, uh, our unique brand of um, spirituality, which is all inclusiveness. Respect is what every person knows every other person. Um, the idea of uh, of sacredness and living a life of sacredness and learning from the medicine and imparting the universal teachings of Mother Ayahuasca in your daily daily walk, which is the emphasis of integration. So, you know, whether it's a church or not, you know, it, Ayahuasca naturally, uh, we create a, a container, a community where these conversations are natural. What a church really is, is a community of people that come and share their hearts and souls and their truth, whatever their walk of life, mm -hmm. you know? And so you know, my job, uh, even now, you know, and, and I'm a part of a, of a global church, a, a temple of the sacred plants with, you know, with church centers or temple centers in, in seven different countries that serve the medicine with integrity that serve the medicine with fidelity between, you know, if you come to uh, Ecuador here and you're leaning into this medicine work, you know, what do the Quechua, which are the indigenous believe about the medicine? What do they believe about nature? What do they believe about the plant spirit? And so um, that's what the, the, the temple is about is bringing indigenous beliefs really back to um, the other parts of the world, because I think many of the folks have just made it up. They've mm -hmm. just been winging it for the, leg the legality of it. And so we really want to bring the, the authentic, um, original concepts of what the indigenous believe about this medicine. They've been working with this medicine since before the Amazon was called the Amazon. They know an awful lot about plant spirits. Mm -hmm. And so you talk to a Westerner about the spirit of plants and they look at you like you're a little off, <laughs> a little so, crazy. What have you been smoking? Yeah. Right? But it's this idea that the life force that's in a plant is the same life force that's in you. Yeah. You share that in common that these plants have uh, sentience. They have consciousness. They've got wisdom. They're beings. And when you drink ayahuasca or any of these other uh, master teacher plants, they bring with them a universal kind of teaching that is hard to explain. Hmm. There is an overreaching soul within these plants and these spirits that influence us. They help us to heal. This is the strongest medicine is the medicine from the plant spirits. So this makes big pharma look like a joke. These plant spirits or the essence or the, the spirit of these plants or whatever you call that life force of the plants is the spirit medicine for hmm. people and there's a relationship that we want to foster that we learn from the indigenous about this the respect for pachamama the inclusion of you know of pachamama in in our in our lives how we cannot live without the plants all of our all of our food comes from plants our air comes from plants. Water even comes from plants. You've got the, you know, the evaporation. You got the the leaves that 
the trees and the jungle here in the Amazon that release so much moisture into the air that affects the, the clouds and the rain and the rain that goes into the rivers affects the tides that go into the ocean that affects the currents that affect the weather systems all around the world. It's all interconnected. And so the indigenous teach us that. These are the guardians of the Amazon here. They're the protectors and the purveyors of this sacred ancient wisdom that we want to bring openly and clearly to anybody that is sitting with the medicine. They need to know what the truth is behind this medicine. This is not a joke. This is sacred reverent work. This is deep work. And so, you know, whether you're a new church in the United States or in the, you don't even have to be a church, I think in the Netherlands. No, you don't have to. Yeah. But there are many places in the world where they have to have this, this fake church thing. And so good people make up these churches, good people with good intentions. If the government says you have to have this to play, people are saying, okay, I got to do this to play. So if you're going to play this government church game, you better be bona fide. You better be authentic. You better be sincere. And how about be rooted and grounded in the traditions that come from the people that are the masters of this medicine? So you worked in a different settings. So you worked in the SoulQuest Ayahuasca Church in, in the U.S. And now you work with the indigenous Satyawasi community in Ecuador. So how would you summarize the additional things that you learned while working with the, the local people here? It's just kind of a, a, a surprise to it's me. It's part of life, right? Yeah. They do it every week. It's more. Yeah, they're, they're, it's casual. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's time for ceremony. And they approach it very, you know, sacredly. But it's like, Bringing, it's like God at your dinner table. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's invisible. It's not like it's uh, it's not talked about. It's not like it's avoided. It's like it's central. This is a plant medicine centric community, and there are very few of them left in Ecuador. And I don't know about other regions or other areas of the Amazon, but in Ecuador, you know, uh, indigenous tribes like Sachuasi are rare, and so this is a culture that's on the verge of extinction. And so, you know, that's why I'm here. I, I, I didn't originally come here for that, but that became the banner that I picked up was the protection and the preservation of this endangered culture, which are the, the guardians of the Amazon and the protectors and the purveyors of this ancient medicine, which the world is clamoring for. And so it's like, hello, <laughs> we've got deforestation going on in the world right now. Deforestation of 170 acres per minute are being destroyed in the Amazon per minute. That's 78 million acres a year that are being destroyed. They'll never come back. And so we're looking at the forces of modernization, the forces of globalization. You're looking at big farm, big farms, agri, big corporate agriculture is the biggest um, culprit in deforestation. You think it'd be logging, mm-hmm. not. It's farming, big corporate farming. And so, and then you have the petroleum interests. And when these lands are destroyed, they do these uh, burning, they burn the land, they clear, they clear it by burning, or they harvest the, the lumber, they burn it. And with it comes the precious uh, endangered species that many of which have not even been categorized or found by science yet, and they're being destroyed. And with it is the habitat of the indigenous people that live in these jungles, they work in these jungles, this is their livelihood, their life, and these just, they are being destroyed. 
these larger forces of modernization, which bring us the petroleum that we use, these guys have great money, great wealth. And what they've done is they've displaced and murdered and stolen the lands and the lives and the habitats of these people. And so this is one of the things about preserving, uh, particularly like the Sachawasi culture, is because those forces of modernization have been devastating. And these people don't have the money. They don't have the education. They don't have the resources. They don't have the tools to match these forces. So the public national education system homogenizes most of the indigenous people in the Amazon. And so what that means is that the people that are left, the indigenous that are plant medicine centric, are looked at as the lowest in the socioeconomic ladder. They are the poor and they are considered backwards in their national education system, backwards. And that this idea, they've homogenized enough of the other indigenous, they think that this type of work with the medicine is witchcraft, mm. is voodoo. And so they've turned the indigenous against the indigenous. Mm. And so Sachawasi is a precious gem. These are, these are uh, people that their lineage is pure. They've been doing this medicine for before the Amazon was called the Amazon. Mm -hmm. So that's thousands and thousands of pieces of, of information that will be lost if this community cannot thrive. If they're not able to survive economically and their economy is based on cultural tourism. And if that cultural tourism goes away like it did in the pandemic, there will not be a community like Sachawasi left in a couple of years. So that's big work that I'm doing here now is helping to preserve their culture through fortifying their their economy. Mm -hmm. Their economy here is cultural tourism, which meant that they needed electricity. They need they have a retreat center here. They needed to have um, clean, pure drinking water. There's not another tribal community, not just plant medicine centric, but another indigenous community that has pure, purified, filtered drinking water like we have at Sachuasi. We upgraded the electrical system, the water system, built a fish pond, huge fish pond the size of a football field. They're starting to harvest fish now. They are completely uh, sustainable now on their own before they weren't. They could not feed themselves. And so with the upgrading of the infrastructure, the retreat center, bringing in high-speed internet, bringing in resources to help with creating the digital platform and the digital footprint in the websites and the the financial transaction systems that make retreat centers work. Sachuasi is now able to feed themselves. They're able to um, outgrow their current electrical system mm -hmm. and bring in a new transformer that they're paying for themselves, mm. not some gringo. And they are 100%, um, they are 100 owners of their retreat center. In other words, 100% of the money that comes in for the retreats that they do goes to them mm. i'm a volunteer here yeah i'm a volunteer as all the doctors we have a medical clinic we built the medical clinic supports the 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 indigenous that live here as well as this five other tribal communities in this region and then we also um built a school and in the school we've got teachers that have come from all over the world all of these things work together in preserving this culture so this culture will be able to match the wits. We have two, two uh, members of the Sachuasi tribe that are at the university now. 
getting university educations. I went to two high school graduations last year and neither of those graduates had ever used a computer and had never been on the internet. Now these two university students have laptops of their own and they are now in a position to start to, you know, match the, the world, right? They're, they're the ones that have to fight. They're the ones that have to be strong and know how to meet these challenges, not the gringos, right? So you're kind of a bridge builder. So you help Westerners to learn from the, the plant medicine and the, the culture and, and the medicine has been used here for thousands of years. And then you empower the locals kind of with prosperity, economic opportunity. Reciprocity, we call yeah. it. Reciprocity. Reciprocity. So many of the retreat centers are run by gringos and they make thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, like the, the place where I was, mm -hmm. you know, a hundred people a weekend, a hundred people every weekend at a thousand dollars a pop. Yeah. And so, no, no financial transparency. Yeah. So reciprocity is uh, what makes this uh, a thriving uh, collaboration in a way, because there's, there's a lot of Westerners coming. I have at least two more questions. So one is around your Netflix uh, appearance and the other is around accepting life. Let's start with that one, because the, the key thing that I learned during this retreat and also from you is the art of accepting life, because sometimes I resist things that happen and that can cause suffering. And I read about accepting life, but reading and intellectual understanding is different from applying it emotionally. Um, so since it has been powerful for me, but I assume other people can benefit from that too. Like, can you share a bit the, the, the art of accepting life mm -hmm. and why that's the secret to life? Mm -hmm. It really has to do with your fundamental core belief about yourself, your identity. Is life happening to you or is life happening for you? Mm. And if it's happening to you, then you're a victim. And you're a victim of forces outside of your control. And so if life is happening for you, then there's a universe that's conspiring on your to your benefit. So how is that possible? Right? Yeah. So and I always like when your case, you know, we're talking, I, I think I... I pointed out to you at one point um, that, you know, um, this idea of um, reality being the way it is instead of it's supposed to, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, are you ever going to win an argument against the reality? <laughs> That's right? difficult. Yeah. It's like my mom died. Mm -hmm. Right. That's in your case. My reality. Like your, yep. your mother died. That's the reality. And you'll never win an argument against the reality. And so when we go against um, what is, we have an authorship problem, mm. right? It's like, well, this is the problem. I'm not accepting what is. If I'm in resistance to it, then how can I get past it? Mm. Yeah. Right? So it, it brings a deeper question into if life is happening for me, the universe, whatever that thing is, seems to be intelligent so intelligent you're looking at miracles you're looking at these times in your life that you should have been dead hmm. and somehow you've got a lucky break yeah is that just by chance i think of this the the, the, the circumstances the clinky dings the, the the circumstances that aligned up at this moment in time if i had not met this one person my whole life would be different Hmm. Had I not gone out to coffee one day, I would have never met George Denny, who was the founder of Kohan Shoes, that helped me with an investment problem I had at one point, changed my life. 
right? These little synchronicities, how is it? How is it possible? So I believe in God, not the Abrahamic God per se, but the force of life that is infinite and loving, divinely loving, beyond our comprehension and loving. And this love has this universe at its expression, and it is loving us, supporting us, and conspiring to help us to love like God loves, love like we are in our true nature, and to be unlimited like that source or that force energy. And so, yes, everything is conspiring for our well-being, which is a radical perspective. It's like it's radical to think the universe is love. It's radical to think that the universe is based on principles of love. But look at the children. The children don't get held in orphanages. They die. Mm -hmm. Right. You're talking about the loving embrace, the loving contact. We know that people that don't have connection and love. They're depressed and die. It's where the the whole nature of mental illness is, you know, round, grounded and rooted in this idea of you don't have enough love. I mean, more love, care, tenderness, you know, affection, nurturing, significance, this sort of thing. So it's a big, it's a bigger question. Yeah. The universe is conspiring for me, then it's working for me, and so it's like. Why would I be in resistance to anything that's happening if the yeah. universe is perfect? It's acceptance. So right? if you if you so if you shift that fundamental belief about life or the universe, and you you really learn to accept, then life also becomes easier in a way. Or oh, you're to... in the flow. You're not <laughs> against it. You're you're you don't have resistance. So I can't change this. I can't change the past if I'm holding on to it, or if I'm repressing it then it squirts out in a disease in my body or it becomes a, 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 an obsession or it becomes a distraction. It becomes a, a, a mental, it becomes mental illness. Mm. So when we work with patients who are depressed, you know, the, the, the depression is usually the result of the suppression of the true self suppression. You know, how did you get suppressed? These are the fact. These are the factors. My mother was overbearing. She took all the decisions away from me. I just did what she told me. Or I wasn't allowed to to express myself. Whatever. And these things all add up, and they end up creating blockages and this sort of thing. Well, how do you get unblocked? Yeah, yeah. This is complicated stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the brain, so brilliant, just shoves all that stuff into the mm. subconscious, and then you're going, okay, let's drink some ayahuasca and unroot that block. Yeah, and it comes out. It's like. It's like a police officer going into the warehouse and looking for the robber, right? The one that's robbing, you know, pinching off your flow of the life force in you for what happened to you 30 years ago. I cannot accept that I was molested. I cannot, you know, I cannot forgive, you know, the, my, you know, whoever, you know, neighbor who, you know, molested, you know, and it's the inability, the inability to accept that it happens except yeah. that it hurt except that it's over yeah so i think that's one of the main things that i uh, that i'll take away from this retreat and i feel i've developed some capabilities to actually implement it because i would say that at the intellectual level i already heard about the concept so to say so that's the takeaway and another one that that st stays with me you said what do you want more of and then you said maybe you want even a more legendary life and it kind of inspired me as well, because a part of me wants to live a legendary life. And for me, for instance, deciding to, to run a podcast is part of that. This is kind of an excuse to know people that I find inspiring, to interview them, 
and I really experienced with this podcast that my guests, like you are today, they send me to new people. They're like, ah, you should interview this person. So I'm kind of following this path. But a part of me also sometimes doubts my own life, my choices. I think it's a bit maybe progressive or out of the ordinary. And then maybe I'm longing for a bit more, I don't know, traditional life. Um, but did you tell that to me? Because it's also so your own longing to live a legendary life or, 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 or why did you say that to me? Well, I don't make that as my goal to, to live a legendary life. I think that the, 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 the service that I'm creating or the things that I'm doing in my life may have legendary status, mm -hmm. but that's, I think something that the people that benefit from it, um, ascribe to you mm. legendary. Yeah. Right. I don't seek legendary. No. And I don't think you would seek legendary, but you're definitely on the road that traveled mm -hmm. and your, uh, options my sense is that your your conservative um, background uh, is not in um, uh, alignment with your uh, uh, very um, exotic uh, <laughs> life path. Yeah. And so with that comes a reconciliation one day and you're reconciling saying, you know, it's okay to be extraordinary. It's okay to be you know, um, dynamic and, and global and um, unconventional. And that's uh, liberating for a spirit like you if you have this restrictive core belief from childhood or your family that says, we're conservative, you need to be traditional, like have a house and have a job that you go to every day and you have the the family and the convention right mm -hmm. you know your podcast is called what soul kitchen soul kitchen and so a recipe <laughs> <laughs> yes we still need to get your recipe, recipe for life, for life <laughs> is break all the rules yes break other people's rules mm -hmm. those rules that they placed on you yeah break them because they're not your rules it's like this, this compelling, this, you know, like a vampire compels its victim in, in, the, in the story. You know, it's like, break those rules. You know, I live by only my rules. Hmm. Yeah. So the kind of, it's break your own, break rules, but it's also kind of develop your own rules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. To break them, you'd have to have something to replace them. But yeah. 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 Follow your own beat of your own drum. You know, I wasn't able to do that even in my realm of spirituality, because I was still following the rules. Mm -hmm. Spiritual? You're supposed to be nice. Mm. Spiritual? You're not supposed to say things like that. Mm. You know, spiritual, you're supposed to be good. Yeah. Right? Which is like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the rules of the of the spiritual spirituality cult. Mm. Like the ayahuasca cult. Yeah. And the religious cults. It's like, that's draconian dogma hmm. uh, that's not liberation that's not freedom it, god is the essence of freedom you're free right so how can anybody put rules on me and for me to live a godly life i need to live one that i uh, choose which means i have free will my free will 
So don't put rules on me. That's why I, I, I'm for less government, not more government. Mm -hmm. Say, I don't want all your rules, right? I don't want the rules. I make my own rules and my rules are probably more strict than anybody else's rules. But it's like, I'm choosing those rules. So when somebody takes your choice away from you, that is the opposite of God. Mm -hmm. Because the energy of the source gives you, just like it, free will, create. Yeah. You get to create your rules. You get to create your hell. You get to create your heaven. You get to create whatever legend you want. That's yeah. yours. Nobody should tell you you can or cannot. And I think those two, like accepting life and breaking the rules, they seem to be connected. Because I think what you also breaking said is yeah, breaking other people's rules. Yeah. And when you develop your own belief system or rules, it's also important to really accept them fully, right? For yourself and not start to doubt them. And not be second guessing it because, you know, my conservative beginner grandmother believes in something else. Yes. <laughs> it's like, great for you, grandma. That works for you. But that's yeah. not what I believe. Yeah. And yeah. don't put me down because I have my own mind. So it's not second guessing. It's being authentic. And being authentic is the other ingredients mm -hmm. in a successful life. Authenticity. I don't want mayonnaise on my on my sandwich. Yeah. I, I don't want mayonnaise, right? <laughs> That's my truth. And so many people learn very early on not to express their anger because angry little boys don't get love or angry little girls don't get love. You learn how to not be you. Mm -hmm. You learn that who you are is not acceptable and it doesn't it doesn't make mom or dad or those caregivers the love in your life happy. So they withhold their love or you perceive a withholding of love and so you stop being you. Yeah, I call it, you know, eating shit sandwich. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I eat a shit sandwich to please you. Yeah, I see. And I violate my soul in doing yeah. that. So authenticity, breaking other people's rules, accepting life. Those are some of the recipes that you can share uh, with the world. And before I leave you uh, onto doing your, your work today, uh, not many people have been on Netflix. But many people know Netflix. I'm just curious, how was it for you to be on Netflix? How did that happen? What did it, what did it bring you? Well, we did that, um, that uh, segment in the series Unwell mm -hmm. on Netflix. It was part of a mini, a mini documentary series. And it was a really fascinating process. Most of the guests that were in that um, were people that I had um, identified as potential good stories. Mm -hmm. There were people that you know, came to the medicine with really tough situations, you know, addiction or, or, uh, you know, death of, um, I think one of the, the ladies, um, uh, children had committed suicide or husband had committed suicide. I mean, just the, the, the stories of, of transformation are amazing. Um, you know, of course you think it's going to be much more in the, in the actual video or the, the, the show when they actually present it. But, you know, 99% of it is on the editing floor. And so there's so much that's not there. Um, so I really liked the, what, what they presented. I thought they did it very fairly. And I thought that when a person um, is new to ayahuasca, they got both sides of the story. Yeah. This is no joke. You lie, you die. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not supposed to be on, on um, certain medications. And if you lie about that, you're going to end up in the hospital. Yeah, that's serious, right? It's serious. And so, you know, I think that was uh, accomplished fairly well. Um, you know, just preparing for that, 
filming uh, really uh, was good for our organization mm -hmm. because it's like it made us question, you know, how do we want to present ourselves to the world? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a five-year-old church or four-year-old church at that stage. And, you know, we have, you know, our, our, our rituals that, that we developed and, you know, our, that kind of thing. And as the, as the lead uh, person in the public in that organization, I would be the one that would be, you know, opening up the, the retreat and doing the, you know, the job of a minister of, of welcoming the new members and, and sharing our beliefs and, and, and sharing what, you know, our mission is. And I love that. You know, I, I remember you, I used to be shy and afraid to speak in public, and I didn't like it at all. I mean, I'd be sweating like Richard Nixon on you know, <laughs> the top lip, you know, we designer. Uh, and, and I got over that. You know, I had modeled my, my, one of my other um, mentor people that I really admired so much was Marianne Williamson, and, and then helped her get her first book published, you know, way back when. And The Return to Love was... a, a about the course of miracles but she was one of those people that i modeled mm. so i want to be like that you know i want to be able to you know to present in front of people and and be lighthearted and funny but you know share the the, the the serious messages and i thought that the netflix thing um really captured in some ways uh the the unity of our organization mm. a lot we'd have a lot of volunteers you know 30 40 volunteers for a weekend mm. we have 100 guests you know 30 40 volunteers it's huge it's a lot of people it's a lot of energy it's a lot of of um you know ministering yeah because everybody that would come is about healing mm. the, the guests the the volunteers it, it's all the same thing everyone is there for healing so i think that the that the netflix thing um, it helped us to to see our reflection mm. and to be proud of our reflection. Yeah, we did a lot of great stuff at SoulQuest. The leadership of SoulQuest is a whole other story, mm. but the volunteers and the membership, the members of the church, uh, really made that place unique and special in the world. And becomes okay, yeah. but but the the role. I loved being the the Dr. Scott at the church yeah. because you're looking at people in their most vulnerable states. Mm. And my favorite thing, my favorite thing to do is to help people to return to love, yeah. to return to God or return to peace or return to wholeness. And so that was just like, you know, abundance of that. So I love that so much. One of my motivations in life where I, I always enjoy connecting people so practically, uh, how can they find you? Can they come here? How long do they need to stay minimum? Like, how does that work? So if a person were interested, they'd go to um, the website, which is sacha-wasi.com. Sacha, S-A-C-H-A-Wasi, W-A-S-I.com. Um, and you'll see that there's a whole variety of, of offerings. So a person could come for a weekend. Mm -hmm. And have a a, big, a a pretty beginning uh, experience with one or two uh, ceremonies with ayahuasca. Um, our most popular retreat is a seven seven day, six night retreat, which includes uh, three three journeys. Two of them, them two of them are with ayahuasca, and the other one is with uh, mushrooms. 
I think it's so important to include mushrooms because mushrooms are so much more accessible in the world than ayahuasca. And it's a great way to continue to do the deep work that comes from the plant medicine path. And so the, the seven-day uh, is another retreat option. There is a 10-day retreat option. There is a 14-day retreat option. There's a 21-day dieta, which is a diet. It's an immersion into the sacred plants and working closely with them. Then we also have therapeutic retreats, which are unique one-on-one that's, you know, working with, with me as a psychotherapist, you know, very intense, deep private work, um, which is um, taking things to a whole nother level. So those are also, also um, available. And then we have custom retreats. So custom retreat would be, you know, I want to, you know, I want to go to uh, the, uh, the, uh, the mountains in, uh, in Cajas, uh, in, uh, in near Cuenca. And uh, this is where I want to start my retreat and I want to do my mushroom journey there and then bring it back here. So there's customizable retreats as well. And those have been really interesting and fun. Yeah. Um, horseback riding and climbing in the mountains and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, these options are available. It's really um, medicine work is a calling. I think so. Yeah, it's it is. a calling. This is not for the faint of heart. This is for some seekers who are really looking to finally resolve uh what's been missing what's what's lacking yeah thank you for this uh fascinating conversation so some of my friends they they're curious that i'm doing ayahuasca and i really want to know more but i i lack the the technical knowledge to explain it so now i can just share them this this episode so it also saves me some time of uh, explaining stuff (laughs) thank you uh, dr scott 